this is how I get by in like the world of classical literature is I like read selections of something without reading the full thing. Like I had a class where I like I read bits of the Aeneid, bits of um, you know the Odyssey, uh, bits of 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 the Divine Comedy. Just kind of left it at that. Just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I can quote that bit of Dante. No, I haven't read the full thing. Oh yeah, I've read the ending of the Odyssey. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Mandatory Media, the show about the books, movies, TV, poetry, and other pieces of media that we really love and really should have been mandatory on your media study syllabus, but probably weren't. We've got three hosts here today. I'm Brett Vandenbrink. I'm a poet and scholar whose article, What You Will, Double Predestination and the Plot of Twelfth Night, was recently published in Synesthesia Online. Also joining me is... Hi everyone, I'm David. I've got a bachelor's degree in media and communication studies. Woohoo! But I've mostly spent my time reading and writing about sitcoms, film, and video games. So really useful today. Hi, I'm Seth. I don't have a bachelor's degree yet. Um, I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a general lover of the arts. Today's episode will be covering Robert Browning's poem, The Heretic's Tragedy. Okay. That's a metal. <laughs> oh, yes. So, you know what? I wonder, have you guys heard of Robert Browning before? Except maybe when I've mentioned him in the past, if I have. I can't say I have. Yeah, me neither. That's fair. He's a major English poet, but he's not read that often nowadays, which is sad. But we're reading one of his poems today. Um, I, I feel I should note that this isn't one of his best poems or most commonly read poems. I just chose it because I found it fun. Okay. And I mean, what's more fun than a public burning, which... This is the subject of this poem. Amen. Um, I, yeah, what is more fun? <laughs> just to note, mandatory media does not condone public burnings. That was a joke. <laughs> this is a joke. No, I, I fully condone public burnings. I think we should have more of them, actually. Dude, back in the 1660s, I was having a great time. I was in Massachusetts for most of it. I can't say why, because it will get me in trouble. I'll get canceled on Twitter for it. But I was in Massachusetts during the 1660s, and I had a great time. That's all I'll say. I had a great time. Uh, which town were you in? Uh, well, I was in which town? <laughs> oh, uh, comedy, comedy, satire, satire, parody. I'm not being sarcastic at all. We're uh, we're legally uh, we're legally free to say what I was involved now. in the Salem witch trials. <laughs> uh, the 1660s. You know, I'm not pro-Puritans in the 1660s, but I must say, the 1660s were quite good, at least for that one Puritan, John Milton, who published Paradise Lost. Yeah. There we go. It always comes back to Milton. Yes, or Harold Bloom. One of the two. Yeah. 
<sighs> but now, right? I, I I could have used a Harold Bloom segue there, but I'm not going to because that would what be. What did Harold to... Bloom say about Robert Browning? I'll get to that eventually okay. in this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. But oops. But before then, I thought I'd say a little bit about who Robert Browning is. Robert Browning was born to a wealthy family in 1812. His father worked for the Bank of England, and his mother was an evangelical. In 1826, Browning read a pirated volume of Percy Bysshe Shelley's poems, and modeling himself after that tempestuous atheist, he renounced his mother's Christianity. Soon enough, however, he returned to the evangelical fold. In 1845, he began to trade letters with the poetess Elizabeth Barrett, and in 1846, they married. They had a happy marriage, and after Elizabeth died in 1861, Robert never remarried. He died himself in 1889. I have two questions. Oh, you said you have two questions? Yes. One oh, what are they? Is What is evangelical? Is that a job? Or is that just like... No, like that's kind of like the branch of Christianity. Okay. Like, just the the sentence made it seem like um his his father worked at the Bank of England and his mother was an evangelical. Yes, know. yes. Okay, okay. I probably could have worded that better. Okay. But bankers like, can't be evangelicals. Pick yeah. one or the other. It was just like a characteristic <laughs> trait. It wasn't Yeah, yeah. Well I, I see the confusion there. Yeah. I I don't know I don't think religion was as huge a portion of the father's life as it was the mother's mm -hmm. but yeah that's just kind of her yeah one trait also, that i plucked out just wanted to comment on so a pirated copy as in like they got it from pirates i guess oh no it was some kind of i i don't want to see it say illegally published but it's like percy shelley was a very um, what's the word? Controversial figure. He, I believe he had to leave Oxford. He wasn't able to finish his degree because he published a pamphlet with the title of something like The Necessity of Atheism. Mm. He kind of, he became notorious for all of the wrong reasons. Oh, okay. He didn't, and he didn't have that kind of prestigious notoriety that Byron had because unlike Byron he didn't have the super rich background and couldn't call himself a lord hate to see so, it yeah. okay yeah the, ne never mind then just to throw out both my questions so that's fine <laughs> well not to throw them out I feel like I answered them didn't I yes yeah but they are just neither important nor interesting to the broader <laughs> <laughs> it's just me misunderstanding things and being like pirated pirates that's sick <laughs> <laughs> no he torrented the book <laughs> yeah yeah i was thinking that too <laughs> yeah well it's like the 19th century edition of, of torrenting <laughs> just just buying i guess or not yeah. buying, stealing okay and, and anyways regardless this, this might take longer than an hour <laughs> well we'll see yeah uh, now, do I want to talk about more about Browning or about his poem? Actually, maybe, because this is really fun. You might have heard of the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, mm -hmm. who is a famous Catholic poet from the same period. 
And he wrote about Robert Browning in a letter to R.W. Dixon in 1881. He called him Bouncing Browning and said that this bouncer had a way of talking and making his people talk with the air and spirit of a man bouncing up from table with mouthful of bread and cheese and saying that he meant to stand no blasted nonsense. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, Robert Browning wrote a lot of dramatic monologues, so just these poems spoken from some kind of interesting character, and they're lots of fun. He wrote a couple plays. Some of them were produced, some of them weren't. Ah, uh, yes. That's kind of like the modern equivalent of like, like hyping your, your, hyping your friends up on Twitter, you know? You know, I, th- I think Hopkins meant it in more of a negative sense. Oh. Oh. Like, so it's like dissing like, someone on Twitter. Yeah, it's exactly. kind of like he's gross and undignified. Mm. With bread and cheese in his mouth. Yeah. But you know, I, I love historical beef because mm-hmm. it's always so dignified and polite and it's the best. Well, not always. Sometimes could be. Get yourself a nice aged sirloin. <laughs> so good. You get it? <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm I'm quitting. Uh this has been great, guys. Uh I'll see you. It seems I'll see you, sir. All, seems all I can offer this episode is just bad jokes <laughs> but you know what david that's why the people come exactly it, like if they didn't want bad jokes they wouldn't be here huh. well maybe i'll start actually reading this poem yes. so there's it's called the heretics tragedy middle age interlude and there is a note before it which i'll read rosa mundi sue fulgite me floribus a conceit of Master Gisbrecht, canon regular of St. Iodicus by the bar, Yeep City, Cantuque Virgilius, and hath often been sung at Hoctiden festivals, Gavisum erat Gessidus. It would seem to be a glimpse from the burning of Jacques de Berg Molay, Paris, A.D. 1314, as distorted by the refraction from Flemish brain to brain during the course of a couple of centuries. So the first part of that um, is kind of just like a note that if you imagine that this poem was a historical artifact, that the person who was making this is just kind of noting the historical context. And then the second part of that is the note of what you're supposed to think is the guy who found this old poem written by this other guy and wrote a note of what he thought it was. So the guy who's burning in the poem is Jacques de Berg-Molay, the last leader of the Templars before the sect was shut down. And yes, and so the person writing this is supposed to be from a couple centuries after it happened, so the historical event has been semi-lost to legend at this point and became this poem. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. I feel like um, the sex being shut down uh, is a little, uh, you know, polite, 
given that the leader was, you know, again, burned alive publicly. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, I, one thought there. I, I think, like, the Knights Templar is interesting, too. As someone who knows nothing about the Knights Templar. <laughs> oh, uh, people have latched onto it, and weirdly. Um, like, you think about, like, uh, cult classic movie National Treasure. <laughs> they talk about the Knights Templar. Um, more popular in pop culture, like the Assassin's Creed video game franchise. It's a whole bunch of, like, the Temp Knights Templar are the... Uh, or the enemy in that game or those series of games it's just yeah it's interesting to me that you know they shut down burn the guy at the stake and then years later they're in a video game it's just the weird. knights templar have been associated with legends circulated even during their time masonic writers added their own speculations in the 18th century and further fictional embellishments have been added in popular novels such as uh, the da vinci code Modern yeah. movies such as National uh, National Treasure and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, and video games such as Deus Ex, Assassin's Creed, and Dante's Inferno. So, there you go. Perfect. And it should also be noted um, about this kind of preface to the poem that the Gavisus Aram Gesidus is Latin for I, a son of Jesse, rejoice in it. And this is from a footnote to the edition of the poem that we're using, which is like the, oh, it's the Oxford Anthology of English Literature. That's what it was. Yes. But that's, but the whole I, a son of Jesse, rejoice in it is ironic because as the footnote says, the interlude supposed author full of hatred dares to put himself in the line of David, son of Jesse, and the traditional author of the Book of Psalms. <laughs> so the author of this poem that you're about to experience puts himself in the same genealogy as the author of the Book of Psalms. Right. And also Jesus, because Jesus was also of the stem of Jesse. Yeah. And okay. this is a sick burn because... Wait, what's the sick burn? <laughs> it, it, it's not so much... Well, well, the sick burn that's happening is the public burning. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, yes, that is the burden here. It's it's more just like uh, he's calling himself a son of Jesse, and yet he's like rejoicing in them killing somebody mm. instead of doing you know the more noble Davidic or or uh, Christ like thing. At least that's what I'm understanding. Though, yeah, TBH yeah. David did a lot of not David Witzke, King <laughs> David from the Bible uh, did a lot of really terrible stuff. So I mean, I'm not gonna judge this poet or this fictional supposed poet too much yeah sick sick burn was not the correct way to put it i, I was more asking like what is like this is the, in the footnote it says this is browning's irony um why is it ironic oh just because like the person isn't living up to this gene genealogy that they're giving themselves okay. and i mean the poem will not the poem doesn't have the same dignity that the psalms do, even when the psalms talk about things like war and killing children and that sort of thing. Okay. Psalm 137, my favorite okay. psalm. Okay, so I'll read 
I think we should go through the stanza by stanza just so that we can hear this wonderful poem whose most of its wonders just in the sheer sound of it. One, preadminisheth the abbot Diodot. The Lord we look to once for all is the Lord we should look at all at once. He knows not to vary, saith St. Paul, nor the shadow of turning for the nonce. See him no other than as he is, give both the infinitudes their due, infinite mercy, but I wis, as infinite a justice too. Organ, plagal cadence, as infinite a justice too. So what are your thoughts on the first stanza? Thoughts on the first stanza, David. Oh yeah, I have so many thoughts. Um, is it an organ stage note uh, there in the text? I believe so. Let's see. Yeah, so the footnote says it's a closing progression of chords. I do think like, you know, it's nice and melodic. I, I'm really not good at critiquing poetry, but I do think this would sound awesome with some classical organ in the background. <laughs> Oh, yeah, let me just pull up my organ real quick. Well, it's supposed to be kind of... Like, this is a good example of Browning being bouncing Browning. Like, it's not super dignified. It's a bouncy meter. It talks about God in this way that could be reverent, but really isn't. Like the word nonce gives away that he's not being mm. that serious. And it does allude to the Bible, like the phrase no shadow of turning would come from James 117. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Which is to say that God doesn't change. And there's also this note that God is infinite, both in mercy and in justice. But that is mostly to justify what's to come later. The note on justice rather than mercy is what will emphasize mm. this wrath that will come next. Although it should be noted that Browning doesn't put the wrath that is to come in the um, the wrath that is to come is not so much from God as from the people who right. are misplacing it in the name and mouth of God. Would you say that this is, or could be seen as like a biblical satire then? I don't think it's a satire of the Bible, but I, I think it's satirizing the kind of people who would rejoice in a public burning. Mm. So, let's continue on to stanza two. One singeth. John, master of the temple of God, falling to sin the unknown sin, what he bought of emperor out abroad, he sold it to Sultan Saladin, till caught by Pope Clement a buzzing there, hornet prince of the mad wasp's hive, and clipped of his wings in Paris square, they bring him now to be burned alive. And wanteth their grace of Luther Clevis Athern, ye shall say to confirm him who singeth. We bring John now to be burned alive. So, in this stanza, there's some historical details on John, the leader of the Templars, and what he did with certain historical figures, and that's not that important. 
what's important is that he messed up. The church is mad at him, and now they're burning him alive. Yeah, I do think it's interesting reading the footnotes where it's like, actually, Saladin lived two centuries before Molay. Uh, yeah, right. Which is, which is an interesting, I guess, inclusion. Because is that, can you chalk that up to the bouncing uh, kind of a thing where he's just being playing a little like fast and loose with everything or? Well, I, I think that we're supposed to get that the speaker of the poem is a bit of an ignoramus yeah. who's like we see in the note that it is the refraction from the Flemish brain to brain. So it's the idea that it's a, all a bit jumbled up here. Mm-hmm. The person who wrote this didn't really know what he was writing about. But the person, I should say, who wrote this is in the sense of the speaker, not in the sense of Browning himself. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And it might be fun noting that G.K. Chesterton wrote mm. about this passage. He says, such a pious and horrible lyric as the heretic's tragedy, for instance, is absolutely original, with its weird and almost blood-curdling echo versus mocking echoes indeed. So that's just a fun thing. Like, and wanted their grace of Lutherclevis that their niece shall say to confirm him who singeth. Like, you could hear the echo of Clevisither and then say to confirm. Right. And it's just very interesting. Yeah. It's a wonderfully crafted poem, even if it's not a wonderful poem. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Three. In the midst is a goodly gallows built, twixt fork and fork a stake is stuck, but first they set divers tumbrils a-tilt, make a trench all round with the city muck. Inside they pile log upon log good store, faggots no few, blocks great and small, reach a man's mid-thigh no less, no more. For they mean he should roast in the sight of all. Chorus. We mean he should roast in the sight of all. Yeesh. Um, I I like the kind of the different voices that Browning implements here and kind of giving the last line to the chorus in a lot of these stanzas. I'm I'm so thrown off by like how much the speaker and this chorus is like reveling in in death yeah and and that's fair like uh, in that sense i think harold bloom has the right answer he says i cannot say that reading this gives me pleasure and yet it is a remarkably accomplished poem robert browning was not a sadomasochist but he must have relished as we do with a shudder this delicious line for they mean he should roast in the sight of all. You need to chant the heretic's tragedy out loud to yourself, and thus enjoy, however equivocally, Browning's gusto as he mouths delicious syllables, mingling grotesque horrors and splendors. And then he reads the next, or, and then he quotes the next stanza. Interesting. I... Maybe I just have a weird messed up brain. I don't find it that disturbing. Like, yes, the subject matter is kind of disturbing, but, you know, which I think is a very weird and probably not correct reaction to have. But I do 
think I guess there's something to like kind of what Harold Bloom is talking about the over the over insistence or the indulgences in that it's kind of used in a satirical lilt or scent maybe mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean that re- kind of reminds me of what Chesterton says about Browning and maybe he describes it as a kind of knot in his mind and maybe your mind has grown accustomed to this kind of knot but I'll read what Chesterton says at length this queer trait in Browning his inability to keep a kind of demented ingenuity even out of poems in which it was quite inappropriate, is a thing which must be recognized, and recognized all the more because, as a whole, he was a very perfect artist, and particularly perfect artist in the use of the grotesque. But everywhere when we go a little below the surface in Browning's, we find that there was something in him perverse and unusual, despite all his working normality and simplicity. His mind was perfectly wholesome, but it was not made exactly like the ordinary mind. It was like a piece of strong wood with a knot in it. Hmm. And maybe that's a good place to leave off to go to the next stanza. Stanza four. Good sappy bavins that kindle forthwith, billets that blaze substantial and slow, pine stumps split deftly, dry as pith large heart that chars to a chalk-white glow. Then up they hoist me, John in a chafe, sling him fast like a hog to scorch, spit in his face, then leap back safe, sing loudest, and bid clap to the torch. Chorus. Laus Deo, who bids clap to the torch. Um, For those who don't know Latin, Laus Deo means praise be to God. Bavins means bundles of brushwood for kindling. Sorry, and it's very fun to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, good sappy bavins that kindle forthwith, billets that play. Yeah, kind of like the the other quotes said that you uh you read out. It's uh it's interesting because it's very lyrical and kind of sweet sounding. Then if you actually like dig into the meaning of like this very graphic depiction of this guy getting burned at the stake. Yeah, it's I th- I think it's the juxtaposition between the sound and the image that is very fascinating. Northrop Pry talks about the melos, the sound, the music of a poem, and the opsis, the imagery, the image that it presents. But it's interesting, just the juxtaposition of those two things works very effectively in this poem. Mm-hmm. And I mean I wouldn't say that the diction is eloquent, but it is like it's bouncy, like with those bilabial plosives, I think it is, with the P and the B sounds. Mm-hmm. Good sappy bavins that kindle forth with blitz that blaze substantial and slow. Pine stumps but definitely dries pith. Yeah. I'm glad you introduced us to that that quote I called him super bouncy. Uh, yeah, because I definitely you definitely feel that as you uh, as you go along with the rhythm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chesterton also says that the rhyming frenzy of Browning has no particular relation even to the poems in which it occurs. Mm. It is not a dance to any measure. 
literature. It can only be called the horseplay of literature, which might also be relevant to this poem. I think that there's some horseplay going on here. And you see, I think I'm I'm guessing Chesterton meant that in like a derogatory form, but oh no no Chesterton's all for it. He's okay. so drowning. Uh. He's like, I love this. Chesterton is very boisterous himself in his writing. Okay, he wholly approves. Never mind then. Ah, uh, okay. So so Chesterton is not um, Gerard Manley Hopkins then. No, not at all. Uh, yes. Anything about uh, four you want to mention, Seth? Oh, the fourth stanza. Um, praise be to God who bids clap to the torch. It's just the chorus lines. I'm like, wow, it's very that's very Grecian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I I like those lines a lot. They're very sick thank you for that eloquent uh, response that was very cool no no no, sorry like sick as in gross and disgusting oh okay revolting like genuinely like they're kind of sickening and i like it okay i thought you were just being little bro dude it's like yeah man that was sick that was sick dude i love people getting burned speaking of someone getting burned stanza five (laughs) John of the Temple, whose fame so bragged, is burning alive in Paris Square. How can he curse if his mouth is gagged, or wriggle his neck with a collar there, or heave his chest, which a band goes round, or threat with his fist, since his arms are spliced, or kick with his feet, now his legs are bound? Thanks, John, I will call upon Jesus Christ. Here one crosseth himself. So basically, we see John on the fire. He's bound. He can't wriggle his neck. His mouth is gagged. He's in an unfortunate situation, and he just crossed himself, I believe. So he made the sign of the cross, or possibly one looking on made the sign of the cross, which would make sense since he's all bound up. So ignore the first thing I said. Yeah, I I would say un unfortunate situation might be a little bit of an understatement here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty gnarly poem. He's just like, yeah. What you don't think I'd be so blasé if I was burning alive? <laughs> <laughs> You know, what a stoical image. Just me on fire. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like a fun Instagram post. Yo, Brett is on fire right now. And was like, hell yeah. Like, no, no, he's on fire. <laughs> you got to do a, a, like a, like a Photoshop of Brett on fire and post it on the Instagram before this episode comes out. Put it on the interwebs. Uh. Well, with that note, let's move on to stanza six. Let's do it. Jesus Christ, John had bought and sold. Jesus Christ, John had eaten and drunk. To him the flesh meant silver and gold. Salva reverentia. 
Now it was Savior Bountiful Lamb. I've roasted thee, Turks, though men roast me. See thy servant, the plight wherein I am. Art thou a savior? Save thou me. Oh, chorus. Tis John the mocker cries, save thou me. Again, if you don't know, Latin, salva reverentia, means a saving reverence. And according to the footnote, it is a direction to genuflect to the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And of course, when it says that in the poem that he had eaten and drunk Jesus Christ, that literally means the bread and wine right. of the Eucharist, which transubstantiates, so Catholics believe, into the body and blood of Christ. I love the um, kind of natural symmetry of line 50. I have roasted thee, Turks, though men roast me. Mm. Yeah, you know, in back in the Middle Ages, that would probably be seen as like, ooh, I look, God, I served you so well. I roasted these Turks for you. Mm-hmm. But now from a modern day, and I think even from Browning's day, it would be seen as ironic, like, oh, this man kind of deserves this. Yeah. Sure. Like, not for the reason that the people who are burning him think that yeah. he does, but... It's like, I killed and burned people for you. Why did, mm. Why should I be killed and burned? Right. Once again, our earlier conversation, there are no consequences to any actions. You can just do whatever you want. <laughs> yes. Especially not in the Middle Ages. Yeah, well, no. you could be burned to the stake. That was very rare. Never, Almost never happened, except to this one guy. This one guy, and he was the only time anyone had been burnt. No, yeah. I don't know who Joan of Arc is. Um, I think they did some sort of guy and a fox, but I'm I'm not sure about that. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. they did burn a guy and a fox. <laughs> together. Okay, but that... Okay, I know that was a joke, but I want to make very clear that that was not medieval. That was early modern. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The statement still stands. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the Salem Witch Trials, also early modern. Yeah, David. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh no, I'm just making a reference to earlier. No, I'm just going to blame David for it. Regardless <laughs> of what your reference is, David's getting blamed. Well, maybe we should move on to stanza seven. All right, All right good idea. Seven. Who maketh God's menace an idle word, saith that no more means what it proclaims. Than a damsel's threat to her wanton bird, for she too prattles of ugly names. Saith he knoweth but one thing, what he knows, that God is good and the rest is breath. Why else is the same styled Charon's rose, ever a rose, oh sorry, once a rose, ever a rose, he saith. Chorus. O John shall yet find a rose, he saith. What's the meaning of damsel's threat to her wanton bird? Damsel's threat to her wanton bird. Oh, damsel. You know, I do not know. What? Oh my god. For she too prattles of ugly names. 
you know, I almost wanted to say that reference to Romeo and Juliet, but I think that there's a wanton's bird, not a wanton bird. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first result that came up when I googled wanton bird, so. And then, of course, you also get the whole line about a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So then maybe it is an allusion to Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know quite what this is leading to. Of course, uh, Sharon's Rose is a reference to uh, the Song of Solomon, yes. or the Song of Songs, where the one of the speakers compares his beloved to this rose, uh, the Rose of Sharon. Yeah. Um, I've also been reading Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath recently, in which one of the characters, her name is Rose of Sharon, but in the Ooh. dialect that the book is written in, they always say, Rosa Sharon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you want to read Southern dialects written, uh, check out The Grapes of Breath. It's really cool how he spells things. But David, to answer your question, I, I, I think that basically a damsel's threat to her wanton bird is a threat that someone would make without carrying it out. So it's like an empty threat. Okay. Yeah. But, so it's the equivalent to making God's menace an idle word. Mm -hmm. But speaking of roses, oh my, is there a rose ahead of us in stanza eight? As it arose. <laughs> stanza eight. Alack, there be roses and roses, John. Some honeyed of K. Sorry. Yeah, I'll start again. Stanza eight. Alack, there be roses and roses, John. Some honeyed of taste like your leman's tongue, some bitter for why, Roscalion, their tree struck root in devil's dung, when Paul once reasoned of righteousness and of temperance and of judgment to come, good Felix trembled, he could no less, John snickering crooked his wicked thumb, chorus, what cometh to John of the wicked thumb? So, the rose will continue to blossom in the next stanza. But here we get mm. the kind of introduction to it. I I do like the the footnote, like your 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 Lehman's tongue, which apparently means mistress. <laughs> kind of this uh, uh, honeyed, just like your your mistress's tongue. Boom, another roast. Uh, <laughs> but you might. Sick burn, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't have been giving this power. <laughs> maybe, maybe, we, maybe uh, starting a podcast. Uh... It was a bad idea. <laughs> no, okay, okay. <laughs> Just thought this was a great idea, especially considering that this is the second time that we've come across the word Lehman now. Hopefully, oh, I'm pronouncing it right. I might have pronounced it. In this poem, or just in general? No, in general. Do you not remember the... that one time it was used in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen? I was gonna guess it, it would be that one, because that's the only medieval other medieval poetry we've read. It was early modern. <sighs> yeah, David, it was early modern! Oh, no! <laughs> what the heck? Damn. Uh, I'm, uh, you know what? I, I, I literally made that same mistake in the episode about Edmund Spencer too. 
<laughs> Wait, I did you? It, yeah, I called it medieval, and then you're like, or no, I I call it I call it all uh like Middle English. Oh yeah, that well, that actually. was just me being pedantic. Well, yeah, this is also me being pedantic. Just me not knowing my English. Yeah, but it's a, it's it's an important enough distinction. Yeah. Yeah. One day they all woke up in the 1650s and they were like, you know what? Today is the first day of the early modern period. <laughs> yeah. When was the early modern period? I don't want to mess this up. Early modern period. 1500 to 1700. Darn it. it on January 1st, 1500, someone said, this is the first day of the early modern period. Tell us 1499. Be like, we're medieval. <laughs> We're, we're the late Middle Ages. <laughs> oh. Well, with that, let's move to stanza nine. Uh, any more? Are we, is that, that the only thing we're going to say about that stanza? A uh, sick burn? A <laughs> uh, sick burn, bro. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Do you guys want to say more? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a fairly light poem. I don't mind just commenting briefly yeah. and carrying on. Yeah, this is this is a really insightful episode we have. So. <laughs> Stanza nine. Ha ha. Sean plucketh now at his rose to rid himself of a sorrow at heart. Lo, petal on petal, fierce rays on close, anther on anther, sharp spikes outstart, and with blood for dew the bosom boils, and a gust of sulphur is all its smell. And lo, he is horribly in the toils of a coal black giant, flower of hell. Chorus, what maketh heaven that maketh hell? <laughs> I I think the written in ha ha is really funny, but it also comes before like the most intense part of this poem. Yeah, right. Like this is the most vi violent rose that one could imagine. This like, cold black giant flower of hell. I'm trying to figure. I'm trying to decode the the language here. Like, is is the speaker comparing the burning John to like a rose that's opening up because his flesh is melting? Um. Well, I I I believe that it's he's part of the rose, but I would say that the rose is also includes all the tongues of fire. Okay. Sure. Yeah, and like the gust of small sulfur is the smell of the fire and all of that. And his blood is the dew of dew on the flower and so on so and so forth. Okay. Okay. Probably normal things, yes. Yes, absolutely. What maketh heaven that maketh hell. Mm -hmm. Is that like a like a comment on God? What maketh heaven that maketh hell? Like, is that like God created heaven? Now God's creating hell. Like, is that is that the image that the chorus is creating? Well, you know, I am not certain, but that would make sense. I mean, if you think of Dante's Inferno, there you have it inscribed above the gates of hell that it was justice made. moved my maker. Pardon? Divine justice moved my maker on the. Thing. Yes, I, I believe that that's part of it, but also, like, it was fashioned by primal love. Mm. All right, let me let me find the let me find the quote. Hang on. Oh, okay. Are we 
just getting the whole description potion. above the gate to hell. Yes. I I I saw it more as a one of those like um humans make heaven but they also make hell or like the uh, the duality of man of of good and evil. Mhm. Which is I suppose similar, I guess. Yeah. Load. Um threw me you pass into the city of woe, threw me you pass into eternal pain, threw me among the people lost for a for I for I. Uh justice the founder of my fabric moved to rear me was the task of divine of power divine, supremest wisdom and primeval love. Before me things create were none, save things eternal, and eternal I shall endure. All hope abandon ye who enter here. I think that's an older translation, but yeah, no, that's above the gates of hell. Mm-hmm. Cool. <sighs> we should do the entire Divine Comedy for an episode sometime. That'd be really funny and like really holy too. I'm sure we would. We all have uh, enough time to read through the entire Divine Comedy. <laughs> I, I've read it already, so that I haven't read it. I've read I've read selections of of the Divine Comedy. I'll do stanza ten. The final stanza. Yes. So as John called now through the fire amain on the name he had cursed with all his life, to the person he bought and sold again, for the face with his daily buffets rife, feature by feature it took its place and his voice like a mad dog's choking bark at the steady hole of the judge's face died. Forth John's soul flared into the dark, subjoineth the abbot Deodot. God help all poor souls lost in the dark. Subjoineth. I think that's like, that's a switch in perspective, right? Yeah, well, okay, it's, it's the abbot speaking or joining, but why the, why the prefix sub? Um, so it's just like a, a comment added at the end of a speech. So he's just like adding a comment at the end. That's what that means. Oh, okay. Okay. I think that's Twitter. Exactly. It's just the Abbott making unnecessary comments. Actually, that's a pretty good line. I gotta be honest. <sighs> yeah. Like, I mean, if there's one line that I would just like, you know what? I affirm that line. God help all poor souls lost in the dark. Amen. That's nice. I wish it didn't take uh, burning a man at the stake to get here, but it's a nice <laughs> sentiment. Yeah. Details, details. Ah, what can you do? Mad dogs choking bark. I do like how it kind of gets... The rest of it is, even though it's, it's dark subject matter, feels pretty playful. Uh, and this one, I feel like, especially in the second half, feels more like, okay, yeah, he's he's dying, he's dead, in in kind of more uh, more visceral sense than the other stanzas, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Fourth John's soul flared into the dark. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one could see his soul departing his body. But I guess it's just his body going up into flames, but it's like um a bit of Matthew 
I think of 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 Matthew twenty two thirteen, where Jesus is telling this parable, and this like character in the parable is like, throw him out into the outer darkness. And so when I when I read that bit, I think of of the the outer darkness. And then I also think of Cormac McCarthy's Outer Dark, which is on my shelf, and I really want to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we could just say yeah. that. I, I think it's clear from the poem itself that Browning is much kinder than both the people who burn John and the person who, so to speak, within the world of the poem, composed the poem about the burning of John. Right. He's more sympathetic than and empathetic than they are. He sees the folly and cruelty of yeah. this, even as he is the one that creates this fantastic, horrible poem. Yeah. And maybe for me, that's why it doesn't feel that disturbing is because of that like secondary layer where like, to me at least, it's it's clear enough that he's not actually condoning this as the author. This is sure. the this is the speaker of the yeah. poem doing this and he's like yeah look at this isn't this messed up and you're like yeah that is messed up yeah i i hope that's clear that i chose this poem not because it's a great poem or a classic or anything like that but because it's a lot of fun robert browning has better and more probing and deeper poems than this one but to read and hear and just chat about this one i thought was a fun episode yeah that's why it's a mandatory media maybe before we get into the final comments i might just read a quote from the end of gk chesterton's book on browning yeah So this is what Chesterton writes. Everyone on this earth should believe, amid whatever madness or moral failure, that his life and temperament have some object on the earth. Everyone on the earth should believe that he has something to give to the world which cannot otherwise be given. Everyone should, for the good of men and the saving of his own soul, believe that it is possible even if we are the enemies of the human race, to be the friends of God. The evil wrought by this mystical pride, great as it often is, is like a straw to the evil wrought by materialistic self-abandonment. The crimes of the devil who thinks himself of immeasurable value are as nothing to the crimes of the devil who thinks himself of no value. Mm. With Browning's knaves, we have always this eternal interest, that they are real somewhere, and may at any moment begin to speak poetry. We are talking to a peevish and garrulous sneak. We are watching the play of his paltry features, his evasive eyes and babbling lips. And suddenly the face begins to change like the eyes of a mask. The whole face of clay becomes a common mouthpiece, and the voice that comes forth is the voice of God uttering his everlasting soliloquy. Mm. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about Browning is that at some level there is this kind of trans 
transfiguration of the ordinary right. in his work, even as he gives us this wonderful babble of syllables. Mm. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that that about that about sums it up. Uh, what what he said, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. GK. Yeah. No, I I I like GK Chesterton a lot. I think that's a really good way of kind of putting it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I highly recommend GK Chesterton's book on Browning. It's fantastic. Uh, what is the book called? Um, I think it's just called Robert Browning. It might even be Chesterton's first book. Hmm. Uh, yes, it's called Robert Browning by G.K. Chesterton. Three on Project Gutenberg. Nice. Oh, yes. Uh, maybe we could wrap up by mentioning a favorite point, a high point, or a memorable quote. Yeah, the poem. Before we do that, I, I would want to see this poem staged with uh, a speaker and a chorus and an abbot. But it would be cool to like do like a big reading of this and have the organ and have someone singing and I think that'd be fun. Yeah, like a, a classically trained British actor or uh something like that. I can see. Yeah, that. there you go. Oof. Or just me. Make this happen, Seth. Yeah, you could, All right. you could do it too. But if we could get Maybe Ian I McKellen, get I think something. we I, I think we should. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um Favorite favorite line, favorite moment, favorite bit. Who wants to go first? Uh, I, I can go first since I have one thought out. So I'll just say that there are times where I'll just murmur the lines, good sappy bavins that kindle forthwith, billets that play substantial and mm. slow, pine stumps but deftly dry as pith, large heart that chars toward chalk white glow. To myself and just my ordinary day-to-day life, so because of that, I'll probably say that that's the part that sticks out to me because somehow it has ingrained itself into my unconscious being. Mm. My favorite line is, we mean he should roast in the sight of all. Because uh, I think it's gross, and I like the word the use of the word roast. Because um, I think it's, it's, it's a word you, know, you give to food. Like uh, last night we had a roast chicken. But the idea of roasting a person uh, is gross, and I think it it dehumanizes him. And I like that line. I think it's well written. Mm-hmm. Similar. It does... Similar. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and it doubly does that because they say, "Sling him fast like a hog to scorch." Yeah. Right. Similarly, my favorite line also has roast in it. Uh, I have roasted the Turks, though men roast me. Mm-hmm. Um, just, uh, I hesitate to call it lovely, but I am going to call it lovely. Uh, <laughs> the the symmetry of that and the kind of yeah. the, the cheekiness of, I murdered a bunch of people for you. Why am I dying? Like, what's going on there? The whole, like, come maybe, on, God. Maybe murder's not cool. I don't yeah. know. It's just a thought. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Mandatory Media, everyone. If you want to send us a message, suggest a topic, or complain about one of Seth's jokes, you can send us an email at 
mandatorymediapod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at mandatorymediapod. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford. Our logo is designed by Michelle Tang. And the episode is recorded, edited, and mixed by David. But before we go, I think that just for this episode, the end card should be, if you want to complain about one of David's jokes, because this time he was really one, the one initiating and leading all this tomfoolery. So I just gotta, I just gotta keep my name a little bit clean. Okay. Okay. That's fine. for me how sometimes i will find myself unconsciously mumbling dj khaled quotes to myself right yeah no david the same thing the <laughs> it's same exactly thing. the same yeah. let's go golfing <laughs> yeah exactly life I is think... roblox <laughs> <laughs> robert browning uh loved dj khaled <laughs> you probably don't know that but this is definitely the same thing it's where he got most of his quotes from <laughs> Oh, well, unlike David, I have a real answer. <laughs> um... <laughs>